As I read, again, that's Luke chapter 1, verses 67 through 79. Then his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Blessed is the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has visited and provided redemption for his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, just as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets in ancient times. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of those who hate us. He has dealt mercifully with our ancestors and remembered his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant that we, having been rescued from the hand of our enemies, would serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness in his presence all our days. And you, child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, and you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give his people knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Because of our God's merciful compassion, the dawn from on high will visit us to shine on those who live in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for today, for the moment, the gift that is before us, where we have heard your word read. And God, I ask now that your word would go forth in the power of the Holy Spirit to accomplish your will, that you would grant that we would have eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts that are made soft by your powerful hand. And Father, I now pray that whatever proceeds from this mouth that is not of you would fall to the floor and remain unheard. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Lord Jesus, you said heaven and earth may pass away, but your word will never pass away. So Lord, today, even now, would you speak Based upon the promises of your word, we know you are here. You are with us. So, Father in heaven, speak. Your children are listening. Have mercy in the name of Christ. Amen. You may be seated. There's great power in a promise. And there's even greater power in a promise kept. So really, uh, the power of a promise is only built upon the ability of the promiser to keep their promise. I was been singing, uh, for some reason it popped into my head as in the mornings I've been trying to get Chapman dressed. And Chapman's our, our youngest, for you who might be visiting or otherwise. Uh, he's our youngest, and uh, it's Christmas time, and so he is now subjected to all of these convoluted Christmas outfits. You guys know. There's like three layers, and they're three quarters this, and they button this, and there's snaps here. And I'm trying at 7 o'clock in the morning to get him ready with this, and he is not having it. Not having it. 
And so I start trying to sing the 12 days of Christmas, you know, a partridge in a pear tree and five golden rings and, um, and all that kind of stuff. And then I, I immediately can't remember that. And so I, um, I start singing, well, you know, daddy's going to buy you a mockingbird. And, um, and I'm like, I have no idea why I'm going to buy. And I can't remember any of that. And so it's, I, make, I feel like I'm making all of these promises in the song that I have no, I have no intention of getting my son a mockingbird. Um, or anything else, a partridge in a pear tree, or five golden rings, or whatever, 12 lords a-leaping, whatever that means. And so I, um, but the, the promise is built upon uh, the ability of the promiser to keep the promise. Uh, we are going to be subjected to another, maybe, maybe this comes too close to home. You know, convoluted Christmas outfits are great, um, politics are not. Uh, you know, if you know, everybody says, don't talk about religion and politics, and I'm like, I'm a preacher. You're talking about like half my existence. Um, but we're about to be subjected to another political presidential. We already are. We're not about to be. But we already are, right? Where, where people, candidates are just lighting it up in various ways. And there is just, I mean, promise after promise after promise after promise. And we've been so conditioned to be like, oh, that sounds great, you know. Um, well, we, we know that you probably will not keep that promise or you're promising something that you can't keep because of our political system with its checks and balances. Um, but there's a different nature when God makes a promise. Um, God is not like us. He is not, as, the, as he tells Moses in Numbers, he is not a man that he's subjected to change his mind. He's not limited to his financial abilities, so he can... If you were to promise to pay for dinner and all of a sudden you have a $100 bill and dinner's $101, you're kind of up the creek without a paddle. God doesn't get like that. When God makes a promise, He has all of the resources to keep His promise. He has all of the, He has a cattle on a thousand hills, Psalm 50 tells us. He has uh, innumerable angels that He could call to summon to accomplish His will. Aren't His Angels like ministers of fire doing what he tells them to do. In fact, he's so capable that the writer of Hebrews tells us about the Lord Jesus himself, that he upholds the universe by his powerful word. That the universe as it exists, which, by the way, we don't know all of it. We, we haven't yet touched the edge with our telescopes and our billions and trillions of dollars, we haven't yet scraped the surface of the universe, and yet Scripture tells us that the universe, and in, in fact all things there in Hebrews chapter 1, hang upon the Word of Jesus, the Son. They, they have done so for all of their existence, and they will continue to do so for all of their existence, and that's true for you and me as well. That you are here, you have breath in your lungs, hearts beating in your chest, neurons firing across the synapses of your brain because of the powerful word of the Son of God. And His powerful word does not depend upon your complicity. It does not depend upon your acceptance. It does not depend upon your faith or anything else. It simply is because He's the sovereign of the universe. So when God makes a promise, God has every tool in His belt beyond our imagination to do what He said He's going to do. The problem then arises that we believe from our 
bubble of existence, with our infinite wisdom that you have gained over your many, many decades. Some of you. Some of you have fewer decades. Some of you have barely scraped a decade. And yet too often we believe from our perspective we have the right to dictate to God not only how He should keep His promises, but what His promises really should be. And if we would just take maybe like a half an inch, six inches, maybe, maybe, not half an inch, maybe six inches of perspective and say, that's kind of silly. The passage I read here is, in my, my Bible, it's the heading, which those are all supplied, by the way. They're not, the, the gospel writer Luke didn't say Zacharias prophecy. Um, but this is often called the Benedictus. Zechariah's Benedictus, that comes from the Latin for blessed, which we see in verse 68. So maybe if you've ever heard of the Benedictus, if you grew up in a different tradition, you might have heard it. I think there are various songs that are... Um, so this is Zechariah, and just to kind of give you a picture of Zechariah, this is the father of, anybody remember? John the Baptist, gold stars, going out like I've done something. You know John the Baptist, I'm so proud of you. Uh, So this is John the Baptist's father. And in fact, this is where Luke's gospel begins. After an introduction in the uh, the first five verses or so where Zechariah, I mean, where Luke is talking about his his historical method, right? How he's gathering resources so that he might, uh, that Theophilus, who is probably bankrolling the sponsoring Luke's work, uh, that he might have certainty about the things that he's been taught. And he immediately jumps into an instance of Zechariah. Zechariah is a priest. And as a priest, he has an obligation on a certain time. And when his rotation comes around, that he brings sacrifices into the temple. Goes into the holy place, the holy of holies. And there, and you can read it at the beginning of this chapter in Luke chapter 1. Uh, he encounters the angel Gabriel. And angel Gabriel says, your prayers have been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, is going to have a son. And that's all wonderful, except for they've been, they've been infertile. They've been barren. They've been unable to have children. And, and Zachariah's like, well, you know, hold up a minute and just consider the context, you know. Like, you, you go into the Holy of Holies once a year. There are certain times and certain seasons in Jewish life where they go in with bells on so they know they're still alive. Or they'll go in with a rope on in case they drop dead before the altar so that no one has to violate the holy space to get the dead body out. And all of a sudden you're there and you're not there. It's not like you're there. It's like going to your kitchen counter. But he's he's there. Like this is a once every, once a lifetime, once every so often over the course of a life that he has ever been in that space. And then all of a sudden for the first time ever, there is an embodiment. There's an angel to the right beside the altar. And can you just feel the awkward audacity of Zachariah saying, well, but hold, I'm, you know, I'm really old. I don't know if you and the maker of the heavens and earth are aware of this, but I'm really old. And Elizabeth, you know, we're not going to say her when she was born, right? We never do that for ladies, right? Um, but she's really old too. And so there's some, there's some hurdles here, Gabriel. And long story short, After that encounter with the angel, Zechariah is unable to talk. 
which is probably a good idea. He, his mouth is shut. And so he has to come back out. He's taking so long that everybody's like, what's happened to him? Do we need to yank the rope? Do we hear the bells? Do we, just, do we need to send in a, a search and rescue party to get Zechariah? And he comes out and he's unable to speak. And so he's, he's like a mime on the streets somewhere. Like he's, he's doing this and he's, I don't know what, what's the sign for an angel, right? Do, do you have six, you don't have six limbs for six wings? I don't know what Gabriel looked like. But he's somehow articulating to them that he's seen a vision. And everybody's like, whoa. And sure enough, Elizabeth um, is, becomes pregnant. Um, John is being born. And what's fascinating is that Zachariah, though Zachariah is the first of his family to have an encounter with the angel, he is the last of his family to be filled with the Spirit. We see Elizabeth and we see uh, even John in, in utero, right, in the womb, John is filled with the Holy Spirit at the voice of Mary, the mother of Jesus. And so Zechariah now, John is being born. They're wondering what to name him. And he says on a writing tablet, which kids, it's not an iPad. It's not a other a Surface Pro, whatever you got. Um, it, it's probably a, a wooden um, thing, maybe some slate, but probably wax. That was laid over, and they would, he wrote in there, not in English, by the way, uh, his name is John. Testifying that he had, he had sort of acquiesced at this point to what, the, to what the angel Gabriel had said to him. And his mouth is loosed, and he is filled with the Holy Spirit. And from that, we have this benedictus. We have his prophecy, so that the priest... Zechariah becomes prophet. This is different than Mary's Magnificat, where the angel comes to her, and we see this also in chapter 1. Hers is framed more like a psalm, but Zechariah's is framed as a prophecy. In fact, he's filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. He's, he is executing a prophetic role here, just like his son will. John the Baptist will come as the last prophet, really, of the Old Covenant era. He will come as a prophet preaching a a, a repentance for the forgiveness of sins, with a baptism of repentance, that he is the, the, the forerunner who's coming to pave the way for the arrival of the Messiah, the long awaited king who's going to set the world right. And so Zechariah, filled with the Holy Spirit, opens up. This worship prophecy saying, blessed is the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has visited. This language of visitation is a powerful one with Old Testament themes that we can't tease out today. But when God visits his people, when he visits his people, he, it is on the, a magnificent day of the Lord. A, 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 the preeminent example of visitation in the Old Testament is the exodus where God gathers His people and liberates them from the overlords in Egypt, breaks the back of Pharaoh, brings them through the Red Sea, delivers them through trial into the wilderness, provides for them. This is the mighty visitation of God. And so He's visited His people. And so Zechariah is using redemptive language to talk about the arrival of His own Son. 
that this son is not just a prophet of the Most High, but as Jesus says elsewhere, that he, is, he comes in the very spirit of Elijah. He comes in the spirit of Elijah to prophesy the way before the son's arrival, before Christ's arrival. And this is the sign of the, what they've all been waiting for. This is the appetizer of the main course. The arrival of John is a signal that the Messiah is close behind. And in the Messiah, all of their hopes were pinned. Their hopes that there would be finally freedom and forgiveness. And all of the promises of God would find their yes and amen if the Messiah would just come. Now too often, they saw the the Messiah in a light that was too very much shaped by their cultural context. They had a cultural Messiah. Not all of them. I'm not saying that that Zechariah is guilty of that, but first century Jews had a cultural Messiah. You can even see some of this in the disciples. What I mean by cultural Messiah. They believed that the Messiah was going to come at the head of a chariot with swords in hand and an army behind him to oust the Romans and finally establish his kingdom in Jerusalem. To restore them to everything that they thought they should have been. But they lost after Solomon. That there would be a righting of wrongs. There would be just courts. That there would be a military victory with a military king. And this isn't the point of this message, but this is something we must be on watch for. Making Jesus fit our cultural view of a Messiah. This is what you ought to do. This is how you should do it, Jesus. This is how you should roll out, continue to roll out your kingdom in this day and age. We are in the church age, right? Between the first appearing of Jesus and the second appearing of Jesus. This is the age of the church where Jesus is gathering up his people from every tribe and tongue and nation. And too often we, with our decades of experience or less, believe that we can inform him how he should do it Today, in 2023, or in a few weeks, or in a week or so, in 2024. It's a dangerous proposition, and when you do that, you cloud your eyes to what he's actually doing. As we see with the first century Jews. But God visits his people to provide redemption. He raises up a horn of salvation. That's just, that's a Hebrew metaphor for strength. That God's salvation is powerful. He's raising it up in the house of the servant David. So that what we have in the coming Messiah is a fulfillment of all that God promised David. That he would have a king on the throne forever. That the Messiah is the son of David. He is the coming king. So that's not a wrong expectation. But he spoke in verse 70 from the mouth of his holy prophets in ancient times, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of those who hate us. That phrase shows up again in verse 74. So that the the coming arrival, the promised work of the Messiah begins with rescue. The promised work of the Messiah begins with deliverance. And so that all of the deliverances so far that we've seen, I mentioned the really big one bringing his people out of Egypt. But you could see returning them from the exile, preserving them in Babylon, 
reestablishing temple worship after exile. All of these things and more, all of the deliverances of God are driving His people and driving history to the arrival of the great deliverer, Jesus Christ. And He is delivering us, saves us from the hand of our enemies. For Zechariah, maybe, and for many of the first century Jews, their enemy was Rome, was their oppressor. For many, they saw Rome as they saw Egypt, or they saw Rome as they saw Babylon or Assyria. All of these superpowers who came and dominated the people of Israel. And when I say from the hand of our enemies, you might begin to think about some of our enemies that we have here. Maybe enemies of America or enemies of democracy or enemies of capitalism or enemies of our football teams to a lesser degree or whatever the enemy is. Maybe you're involved in sort of tracking geopolitical forces and you're saying, well, we've got, we've got China over here. And we have Iran and all their little proxies over here and we have Russia invading Ukraine and then we have terrorism and we have well, all this other stuff is happening. Look at all of our enemies. And the thing I want to say to you is that yes and no, okay? That God has a bigger deliverance plan for your life than to deliver you from whoever the worldly enemies are today. That does not condone any of that. But we have a graver enemy. We have a deeper enemy. We have a darker enemy. We have an enemy who has been after us, after humanity, since the very beginning. He is the one who appeared in the garden to our first parents and said, Has God really said? That serpent of old, Satan himself, who prowls around like a lion, seeking whom he may devour. Dear one, he is the one who is, if you are in unbelief today, if you have not received Christ Jesus as Lord and Savior, he is the one who is blinding your eyes, the Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He is the one that we wage war against, Christian, Ephesians chapter 6. For we wage war not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities, cosmic powers, and the heavenly places. So take up the armor of God, not the armor of the world. Take up the weaponry of God, the word of God and prayer, not the weaponry of the world to accomplish God's ends. Salvation, the promised deliverance of Christ, moves us from the prison camp of sin, Satan, and death, and delivers us into the kingdom of His beloved Son. The promised deliverance of Jesus Christ, His grace coming to us, His unmerited favor intersecting our brokenness and rebellion. And He moves us from being slaves in the prison camp of sin, bound with eyes that unbelieve, Hearts that unbelieve, enshackled, following the course of the prince of the power of the air, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And he powerfully delivers us. He breaks the teeth of the lion, he breaks the chains of the adversary. And he says, Come out. He moves the stone of sin and death that sealed us in our sin and darkened tomb to bring us into the light. 
Just like he did Lazarus, he has done for you, Christian, but even more dramatically and eternally so. He's brought you from death to life. There is a promised deliverance in Christ. And if you are not in Jesus today, if you have not surrendered your life to Christ, it may not seem like it, but you are living in the darkness. You're living in the darkness. You are in, in sometimes even pursuing your own freedom. What you believe is your liberation. You believe if you cast off enough truth, if you cast off enough of who God has made you to be in your body, if you, you've cast off enough of the absolutes that we see in the universe, if you say, this is the way that feel, makes me feel happy, this is the way that pleases me, this is the way that satisfies me, I can be full this way. What you need to know is that every move of that Every move is that you are putting another padlock on the chain of your own slavery. When you try to find your own deliverance, when you try to find your own salvation, you are actually sealing yourself deeper and deeper and deeper in that grave. But today I need to tell you it doesn't matter how deep you have driven yourself. It doesn't matter... How many padlocks you've put on the chain. It doesn't matter how many times you've said no to the will of God and you've pursued yourself. Jesus is mighty to save. And He is able to forgive. And Scripture tells us that everyone who comes to the, to the Lord Jesus, He will not cast out. If you cry out to Him today, He will save you. He will reach down into the de- deep dark of your sin and the deep dark of your rebellion and He will snatch you up and all of those chains that have been wrapped around your soul, they'll be broken in an instant. We have a promised deliverance in Christ, but when He delivers us into His kingdom, if you go from prison camp To kingdom, you have a different address. You go from prison camp to kingdom, you have a new set of ethics, if you will. You have a new rhythm of life. You have new streets and you you have new signs. You have new desires. You have new wills and wants. You don't leave the prison camp and say, I want to live in the prison camp. Another way of saying that is that you can't say, I have been brought out of sin and death and brought into Jesus' kingdom if your life continues to look like you're living in the prison camp and you have no desire to leave. This, I'm not arguing for perfection and I'm not trying to make you feel un, un, uh, uselessly guilty. How about that? But there should be, even though... Christ has brought us out. The chains may still drape around us at times where we stumble and we trip, but we don't want to be there. We want to be here. If you move from prison camp, you know what it is to be in the prison camp. The other day I was, I I follow, I don't remember what it is on Instagram. Some history, history and photos. I can't remember the exact title of the account. 
Um, but this person is just his historic picture. This isn't, it's a nerd. It's, it's, it's a nerdy Instagram usage. I'm sorry. Okay, it's what I do. Um, so it's, it's this history and pictures. And the other day, um, I was sort of scrolling through, and, um, and all of a sudden there's this picture of an, a, a tremendously emaciated individual. You know what emaciated means? Like, it's just, there's just skin and bones. They're so thin. And they're like, I mean, it, it's, um, they're alive. These men are alive. But there's several pictures where they're just kind of propped up there. And at first glance, you think, well, maybe that's something from the Holocaust, you know, from, from Nazi Germany, which that certainly happened and worse. But it was actually photos from Union soldiers who had been brought out of the prison camp in Andersonville, Georgia, during the civil, after the Civil War. They had become so amazing. I mean, many of them, they had such complications, life complications, health complications, that they didn't last long after their deliverance. But dear one, if you've... But they knew, they knew what it was to be in the prison camp and they knew what it was to be out. If you've been in the prison camp of sin and death, you know what it is to be a slave of sin. You know what it is to have your eyes darkened by unbelief, by the power of the adversary. And then you also know the dramatic power of Christ to save. And if you have experienced that, if you know that, then you want kingdom rather than camp. You want life and freedom in Jesus rather than sin and prison and darkness. He has dealt mercifully with us and with our ancestors. He's remembered his holy covenant, the promise that he swore to Abraham to grant that we, having been rescued, having been brought out of the prison camp, being brought into the kingdom of God, we, having been rescued from the hand of our enemies, We would serve him, verse 74, serve him without fear. The Greek word there is the word where we get our English word liturgy. So service here isn't just waiting tables, but this is the rendering of worship. This is also what you find in Romans chapter 12. Remember that part? Don't be conformed to the pattern of this world or this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. What do you do with your bodies? They are a living sacrifice. This is your spiritual worship or reasonable service. The word shows up there as well. So having been rescued, we now live a life of worship and service. And really, Scripture doesn't draw the line that starkly between the two. There are other words for worship. Don't get me wrong. But you're going through a rhythm of worship. You, that's what I mean. You come into the kingdom and you have a new way of being. You have new worth and new value and new treasures in heaven. And you want to serve the Lord without fear. The power of Christ in your life is that where you once were dominated by guilt and shame, all of that has been lifted off of you, placed upon Christ, and you are now free. Free to serve Him Worship Him without fear. You have a new devotion. We have promised deliverance. We have promised devotion. Because here's the thing, dear one. You are inevitably a worshiper. You in your life, just the way that God has put you together. He's given you time to tell you and tell others what you think is most, most worthy. He's given you money 
to say, this is what you think is most worthy. He's given you, many of you, husbands or wives or children or grandchildren, great-grandchildren. He's given you jobs. Everything that God has given you, one, He has given you. It's a gift of His grace. Every good and perfect gift has come down from the Father of lights, in whom there is no shadow or variation due to change. All of the goodness in your life has come from your good Father. And and it has been given to you, one, that you might rejoice in Him, but two, so that you might preach a message by what you do with it. What you do with it. You are inevitably worshipers. That's how God has made you. So what is your life? What, do you, what does your life say is most worthwhile to you? What, what does it say is your greatest treasure? What does it say you are worshiping? All of those good gifts are good gifts and they should be celebrated. There's so much goodness, rich, deep goodness that God has given us in this life and in this world. But I want you to think that if you've been brought into the kingdom... And you have this new devotion. How can you take all of the good things that God has given and say, look how great my God is. We serve Him without fear. We serve Him in holiness and righteousness. We are set apart, made clean. We're righteous, not because of our doing, but because of His grace that has come to us. God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, that we are righteous before God solely and only upon the basis of what Christ has done. There is no other right relationship, no other right standing with God. This is a legal term where you are, when you are made righteous, you are declared righteous. You are in right standing before God and that is only in Christ, and all of these things are the basis or built to toward our worship. And finally, we have promised destination. There is a promised deliverance from prison camp to God's kingdom. There is a promised devotion where you are inevitably a worshiper. What are you worshiping? And there is a promised destination. Verse 75. Um, Verse 74, we've been rescued from the hand of our enemies, that we would serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness in his presence all our days. Your translation might say before his face. But what God does in keeping his promise to Abraham, seeing it step and progress and progress and progress into the arrival of the Messiah, is that he is bringing us all together that we all might be together together. With him. We have a promised destination. God has delivered us. God has turned our heart toward him in worship and service. And we now have a powerful hope. And that hope is based upon the powerful promise of God. If a promise is only good as the one making it and their power, power to keep it, God has ample testimony before you that he keeps his promises. He has ample testimony before you that he forgives sins. That he will not count your sins against you. They have been placed upon Jesus 
All you have to do is call out to Christ. He's given you ample demonstration that He is worthy to be praised. That He is worthy of worship. So why would you doubt that we have a strong and short hope ahead of joined corporate destination? That we would be in the presence of God all our days. Let me see how strong our promise is before we close. Before I close, I, some of you may have already closed or closed your eyes. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 6, verse 16 uh, says, For people swear by something greater than themselves, and for them a confirming oath ends every dispute. Because God wanted to show His unchangeable purpose. Unchangeable purpose even more clearly to the heirs of the promise. He guaranteed it with an oath. So we have a picture. That we're, we're kind of jumping in the middle. Where God has promised a promise to Abraham. And He swears to it. God takes an oath in Genesis chapter 22. Where He says, I swear by Myself. So that through two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to seize the hope set before us. Two unchangeable things, God's word and God himself. Malachi 3.6 says, I, the Lord, do not change, therefore you have not been consumed. Why should we have hope in a promised destination? Because the one who has promised it to us, the one who has promised it to us, has every resource available and more beyond our imagination to bring us home to it. The promise of hope, of glory, and of new heavens and new earth, it is more secure, dear one. I want you to hear this. Because your flesh will not believe me. But it is more secure than your next breath. Because the God of glory has not promised you your next breath. But he has promised you eternity. And he's promised eternity to all of his people who are in Christ. It is more sure than your Christmas presents or your Christmas plans. It is more sure than your decorations. It's more sure than anything you can imagine because it's based upon the unchangeable promise of God and the unchangeable character of Him. So seize the hope that you have before you. Seize the hope. The great Baptist missionary William Carey said, the future is as bright as the promises of God. Just, that's one of those like crock pot, put it in your, in your gullet and just let it cook for a bit. Quote, the promise is as bright as the promises of God. I don't know what you're carrying right now. For some people, Christmas is like an enduring Hallmark movie. It is just like, it makes you want to throw up. It's so sweet. We, we had one on last night, okay? So... Uh, and I, it's, Sarah Beth fell asleep and I was like, <laughs> I'm not going to lie to you. We only got a few more of these. So this is, I'm not going to lie. 
Some people, it's like an enduring Hallmark movie. It just never ends. So every Christmas season, it's like, woo, living in a winter wonderland. For other, the rest of us, you know, who inhabit this real world, um, Christmas might be a, a bittersweet time where you're reminded of losses. You're reminded of the people that aren't here anymore. The people that you miss and you wish that you could, you know, that you could share Christmas Eve service with or Christmas dinner with or um, open presents with or buy a present for. There's a deep loss there. Some of you are in, in the middle of what just feels like a dynamite has gone off in your life. And you don't know which way is up, which way is left, which way is right. And I want you to say, I want you to see that we have a promised destination. We have a sure hope. A hope that cuts through our darkness, that rests in Christ. And so whatever this Christmas season is, Hallmark movie, look up to Jesus. It's even better. It's even better than Hallmark Studios. I, don't, I assume they're not in Hollywood by their production value. So maybe they're somewhere else. They're housed somewhere else. Um, but it's even better than they can imagine. But if you're in that other spot, don't you remember the words of the psalmist in Psalm 30? Weeping may last the night, but joy comes in the morning. As we saw, I didn't get to it, but in verse 78, there is a dawn from on high that will visit us. Christ has come once, securing salvation through His sacrifice and His resurrection, and He will come again. And when He comes again, this old world worn out by sin and death will be cast aside And his people will inherit a new heavens and a new earth. So my question to you. One. Are you in the prison camp? Or are you in the kingdom? Are you in the prison camp bound up in sin and death? Or are you in the kingdom of God? Have you been brought out by the powerful gospel of Jesus? That everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord, Jesus, will be saved, will be brought out and given a new address. Do you know that? Do you know that? And if you do, if you do, praise God. But now you have a new devotion. You have a new heart. You have a new way. And you have renewed hope. Seize it. Look up to what Christ is doing even, even through these embattled days. But if you're still here and you know it right now, I would ask you, I would not, I'm not going to ask you, I'm going to tell you, you don't have to stay there today. You don't have to live in the dark hole of shame and guilt, fear, slavery to sin and death and Satan. Call out to Christ and He will save. Call out to Christ and He will save. If you're at that point of decision, I would encourage you to respond as we sing. I would love to pray with you. I'm not gonna, I'm not, I won't do anything you don't tell me to do, but I would love to talk to you, pray with you. But you don't have to live there anymore. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your powerful promise. We thank you, O Lord, that your word is unchangeable. 
and you are unchangeable. And so, Lord, I pray for the weary heart today who might be confused or simply just struggling or feeling the bitter bite of loss. Lord, by your power, would you now help them see the hope ahead? The hope ahead. And find renewed strength in these days. Lord, if there are some who need to take that step to trust upon you, Jesus, please, please give them grace that they might reach out to the light in front of them in Christ. Call out and be saved. Have mercy on us. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.